Well, good morning again, 59th Street Church. Uh, for those of you who are joining us a little uh, later today, and as we do meet, we're going to move forward uh, in our sermon series uh, titled The Story, where we explore the grand narrative that God has been planning uh, from the beginning of the universe literally to its very end, which we have yet to see. And so far in our journey, we have been looking at Scripture and that history from God's perspective, right? We've been looking at how even at the start of the universe, God has already been moving and shaping history to lead us eventually to Christ. And even after Christ, um, God is still moving and shaping history today, where we finally anticipate his return. And the beautiful thing about looking at Scripture as kind of as a whole book, rather than looking at it as a series of, of individual books, is that it allows us to look at Scripture with God's perspective in mind. Um, and that allows us to look much further into the future than our human eyes can see. Uh, allows us to look at each moment of Scripture and see not just what God is doing at that particular moment, but how God is going to leverage every single action, every single blessing, and even every single misfortune into taking another critical step forward in salvation history. And for me, this, this reminds me a lot of a certain scientist, a scientist named uh, Alexander Fleming. And Alexander Fleming, he was a Scottish physician and a microbiologist uh, who practiced in the early 1900s. Now, why am I talking about Dr. Fleming? We'll, we'll, we'll see that in a moment. But just, just a brief history of what Dr. Fleming was doing at this time. Dr. Fleming, he was looking at different variations that the bacteria that can cause staph infection can place. You know, not very exciting. You just spread some bacteria on a Petri dish, and sometimes it'll show up as white dots. Other times it'll show up as yellow dots with, with bumpy surfaces. Not very exciting. But just before his vacation, uh, Fleming, he kind of wanted to get a little bit of a head start on his next research. So he put the bacteria on a Petri dish. He kind of tucked it away on a corner of his desk. However, he accidentally left one of those Petri dishes not covered so well. Um, it was left slightly open. And now his pristine you know, sample is entirely ruined. And so by the time he got back from his vacation, he went back to his lab, and he saw this. You know, absolutely, you know, if you look at that, imagine that's, that's what grows on your bread, by the way. This disgusting, like, bluish green mold just growing all over the Petri dish. And now most people, if you're a scientist, if you're a worker, if you're a researcher, if you came back from your lab and you saw this, you would probably say, you know, like, oh my gosh, like, how did I mess up the sample? Now I have to do it again. You'd probably just chuck it off into, into the garbage can. Or, you, or, or you'd look at this with my reaction, be like, oh my god, this is disgusting. Like, let me just not look at this ever again. But the thing is, Alexander Fleming, he was not an ordinary person. He was an extremely brilliant person. And rather than, being focus, rather than focusing on this short-term vision of just like, oh, this is disgusting, let me just get rid, rid of this, he started to examine it a little more closely. And what he noticed was that the surrounding area of that mold was completely clean. Not a single bacteria that he put on that Petri dish grew around the mold. And so looking at it, he famously said, huh, that's, that's funny, like, why is this happening? And so Fleming and his assistant, they decided to switch tracks immediately. And rather than being upset at this minor setback, he had the foresight, he had the ability to look into the future, and he also had the courage to realize that this mold had the potential to save countless numbers of lives in the future. 
And so this guy, this crazy man, he started to grow batches of this disgusting mold, and lo and behold, penicillin was invented. They were able to isolate this bacterial, uh, this antibacterial substance from this mold, and they dubbed it penicillin, penicillin after the name of the mold, uh, penicillium. And so in the passage that we're about to read, we're going to see a similar theme of how foresight can change everything, how foresight has the ability to change and also to save thousands, countless numbers of lives. Uh, whereas human beings, we kind of only care about the here and now, how this can benefit me today, this week, this month, or this year, we're going to be taking a look at scripture from God's perspective to see how even a blessing given to one single person can translate to the salvation of the entire world. And so let's take a look at that today from our passage in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 9. And the word of the Lord says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and this is Abram before his name changed to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offsprings, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now, in this passage, God gives Abram, or Abraham, three promises, or three blessings. Uh, God promises Abram a place, I mean, uh, sorry, a people, a place to live in, and God also promises to make Abram's name great. And so let's take a look at the first promise here today, uh, the promise of people. Now, from Abraham's perspective, and if you look at his life as a whole, uh, we know that this was probably one of the most frustrating promises that Abraham had, right? Abraham, he left his own father, he left his family, his entire tribe, only to wander in this wilderness, bearing no children whatsoever, even though God promised that he would have a people. And in our modern age, I think this is something that we're encouraged to do, right? We are encouraged to kind of leave the nest, to kind of start our own lives, to move off to another city and be independent. But during Abraham's worlds, this was absolutely unheard of. No one did this. Uh, to leave your family, to leave your tribe was literally social suicide, right? You lost your identity as a person. You cut yourself off from the support of your friends, your family, your neighbors, and you're most likely seen to be a traitor of the family. Like, how can you leave us? Like, where are you going to go? You're supposed to continue the progeny. You're supposed to continue the generation here where we have lived, where our forefathers have lived. And so for the vast majority of Abraham's life, 
we see this intense desire from Abraham to create a family of his own, to restart that family that he has lost. And so to reestablish this familial circle that he lost, we see that Abraham has a very short-sighted vision. As he sleeps with his female servant, Hagar, to try to speed up the process of having offspring. And so when God finally intervenes and when God finally gives Abraham and Sarah their first child, we see that Abraham is finally overjoyed. He finally has his first legitimate son. And when we study the story, we kind of stop our analysis here, right? We look at the story as God's faithfulness to Abraham or God making the impossible possible with having, you know, a hundred-year-old man and woman, you know, have their first child. And although that analysis is correct, that God is indeed faithful and that God did make the impossible possible, this is looking just at Abraham's story in isolation. It's a short-sighted vision of Abraham's story. So how do we look at the story from God's perspective? If we look at the promise again, we see that God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Absolutely, God's goal was to be faithful to Abraham by giving him Isaac. But the thing is, Isaac is actually not the end goal. God's story moves on, and as God's story moves on, God's mission moves on as well in saving the entire world. So when we see God promising Abraham a nation, it's actually much more than having kids. And so what is a nation then? Well, a nation is commonly defined as a community of people who have a common descent. And so for the Israelites, you know, tracing that descendants back to, back to Abraham, they have a common history. And so for the Israelites, again, they identify with being slaves in Egypt, being led through the wilderness. And they also have common social values. And so if we take that definition, and if we think about it, what we really see is that a nation is a cultural force within the world. So when God promises to Abraham that God will make him into a great nation, God's not just talking about having kids. God is talking about how he's going to use Abraham to create a new political, a new cultural, and a new religious order that the world has never seen before. God is creating his own kingdom and his own cultural force in the world where Yahweh himself will rule as their king. And so when Christ and when Paul in the New Testament talk about how Christians, we as Christians, belong to Abraham, it's not because we are genetically linked to Abraham, but because we're part of this new culture. We're part of God's culture, and we belong to God's kingdom. And it's because we embrace God's culture that we are considered one of Abraham's offsprings. And so we have the first promise, the promise of a people of a nation, the promise of a cultural force within this world. But we also see God making a promise of a place as well. Um, after all, you, I don't think you can really have a nation without a land or a place. And so for the Israelites, as they're leaving Egypt, as they're hearing about the story told to them by Moses, this is a promise that these Israelites have been waiting for. Just like how Abraham has been waiting for his child, the promised land is the promise that these Israelites have been waiting for. 
And the Israelites, they understand themselves as God's people. And as they're released from Egypt, as they're finally free from slavery, they now see the promised land is beginning to become within their reach. And unfortunately for the Israelites, they too also saw the land as the end goal, as opposed to a means to an even greater blessing, to be a blessing to all nations. And so let's think about this. How is the land supposed to be, or how is Israel supposed to be a blessing to all nations? How is this specific piece of land supposed to bless everyone? More accurately, you know, why did God choose this piece of land? And if you read through the Old Testament, you'd always see the promised land, or Israel, they would always be pictured as a land flowing with milk and honey. Just, you know, off, offshoot Bible trivia or, like, Old Testament trivia. Like, why, why milk and honey? Well, choose, uh, cows have to chew grass in order to produce milk. Bees have to find flowers in order to produce honey. And so if there's a lot of trees, if there's a lot of flowers, if there's a lot of grass, then it must be a fertile land. So that's just an Old Testament way to say this is a very fertile land. Or also, if you read uh, the Israelite spies who went out to scout out the land, they also saw the same thing about how fertile this land was. But truth be told, in ancient Near East literature, both in the Old Testament and in other cultures around the time, they unfortunately kind of had pretty exaggerated claims about the land that they lived in. In both ancient Israel and both modern Israel, although they do have plots of fertile land, a lot of Israel is also very rocky and very mountainous. And so if God's primary focus for Israel was for them to be a prosperous, agricultural nation, then God certainly could have done a much better job, right? God could have settled them near the Nile River, or God could have made the Israelites take over Egypt, which was the breadbasket of the world at that time. There were much more fertile areas than in Israel. And it seems like so it seems like agriculture isn't quite God's end goal here. And so it seems that relative economic comfort or prosperity isn't the main objective of this nation. And so if God's goal was for, or if God's goal was for Israel to be separate from other nations and preserve their holiness, where they wouldn't be influenced by other cultures, other practices, other religions, uh, one theologian, Michael Williams, he humorously said that God could have just placed the Israelites in Madagascar or in Iceland or in some other remote place in the world where they'll never have contact with anyone else, where they can live out their faith in absolute purity with no corruption. But that's not the case either. And so we see that even the maintenance of Israel's moral purity wasn't the end goal either. So if God's goal is neither blessing Israel with material abundance or maintaining Israel's holiness where they will never have any contact with corruption, if that's not the end goal, then what is God's end goal? God's goal is for Israel to be a missionary nation. God's goal is for Israel to be a missionary nation. If you look at the geography of of Israel, you can see the separate tribes there. To the west, you see it's sandwiched between the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the Syrian desert to the east. And so this means that if any one person or if any group of people want to travel through Asia, through Asia Minor, or through Africa, they must pass through Israel. And so Israel served as a geographical bottleneck between three major continents, which made Israel the perfect place 
not for agricultural prosperity, not for moral purity, but the perfect place for cultural exchange. If a nation is supposed to be a cultural force within this world, capable of influencing other nations, then placing Israel right in the middle of three continents makes Israel the greatest place to be a blessing to all nations. The land is not just a gift. The land is not just God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. The land is God fulfilling and holding his promise to save the entire world. And so as the Israelites heard the story of Genesis, where they learned the story of the creation, of fall, of God's choice of Abraham, what is it that they actually learn about Yahweh? And what is it that they learn about themselves as a nation? More accurately, what does Israel learn about God who just saved them, and what does Israel learn about themselves? And one thing that is revealed to them about God is that God is, first and foremost, the first missionary in the world. We see at the moment that humanity failed in the garden, God does not leave humanity, God does not delete humanity or press the undo button and start again. Instead, God comes to seek and save those who are lost. We learn in Genesis that God took the initiative to save those who have been subjected to sin, even if they tried to hide from him, just like Adam and Eve did. And when humanity finally spread throughout the face of the earth in Abraham's time, it was God again who took the initiative, who took the first step to come to humanity, to take also to take the next step in his plan to save all nations by promising to Abraham that a nation will come through him, a cultural force to change the entire world. And when we flash forward and we take a look at the New Testament, we see the same picture. We see the same missionary God again. We see Christ, who left all of his glory in heaven and entered into human history as a human being to live with us, to share with us the kingdom of God, and ultimately to save us through the cross and through the resurrection. We once again see a God who takes the initiative. We see a God who does not wait for humanity to get their act together, but a God who comes in the midst of sin in order to save us from it. God, indeed, is the first missionary. And if Abraham and if Israel truly understood this about Yahweh, that he is a missionary God, then they also learn something about themselves as well. They learn that although they are God's chosen people, they're also chosen with a purpose. Just as Adam and Eve co-labored with God in the garden, both Abraham and the Israelites were supposed to realize that they were also supposed to co-labor with God in his mission of redemption. Being a missionary and showing people or talking to people about the way of God isn't unique to the New Testament. This was the same mission in the Old Testament where the people of God were supposed to live a lifestyle that is so unique, to live in a country where there is justice, mercy, the forgiveness forgiveness of debts, and also the liberation from bondage, this was supposed to be a place that people desired to come to, a place where they could find rest for themselves, a place where they can finally find out who this God is, who this Yahweh is. And so we see that God has already been building his kingdom here on earth 
since the first book of the Bible, since Genesis. And today, as Christians, we realize that we continue in this tradition, that we continue to co-labor with God in his mission of redemption. Although it's true that we do not have to get our act together in order to be saved, it is also true that once we are saved, there is a responsibility as well, a responsibility to demonstrate God's love to both Christians and non-Christians alike, a responsibility to partner alongside God in seeking and saving those who are lost. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you today to not fall into the same trap of short-sightedness that both Abraham and the Israelites fell into. Abraham, he was so focused on the immediate reward of a son that he attempted to achieve this reward by sleeping with his servants. Abraham tried to obtain God's promise without God in the picture. The Israelites, they were so focused on the reward of the promised land that once they received it, they completely forgot the missionary mandate that they were supposed to fulfill. And for us, although there indeed is a promise of eternal life and eternal peace that awaits us, let us acknowledge that that too is not our end goal either. We are saved, but we are also chosen. Chosen with a purpose. A purpose to build God's kingdom around us. And so whether we are young or old or someone whether we are a child or someone who has grown deep in wisdom, we are all encouraged to use our gifts, to use our talents, to partner alongside God in his work of kingdom building. And as we're about to end our sermon here today, enter into a period of prayer, I encourage you to acknowledge the truth and the reality that you are chosen, that you are chosen with a purpose, the search for meaning and purpose in life is now over. You have received it. We have found it. And out of our love for God and out of our love for our neighbors, we live that purpose out by bringing God's kingdom where we live, where we work, where we play, and even here at 59th Street Church. So why don't we do that? Why don't we live out this purpose in our lives today? Let's come together in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that sometimes, honestly, we, we're too distracted. You know, it's, it's true, Father, that there are many troubles that come up in life. There, there are many things that just pop up that are out of control. There's so many worries, so many concerns over our health or over our finances. But Lord, we realize that you encourage us to bring all of these to you, not just because you delight in hearing from us through prayer, but we also understand that all things are in your hand. And that gives us a peace and a comfort that is truly unparalleled, knowing that all things, all of our worries and concerns are in your hand. And so with a peace of mind, Father, we, we pray, Lord, that you'll stir within our hearts a desire to serve you unwaveringly. Uh, we acknowledge before you that this is a lifelong mission, but this is also a wonderful mission filled with adventure and filled with joy as we work alongside you to bring life into this broken world. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll open our eyes to see further ahead, to see how we can leverage each gift, each blessing, and, each, and even each misfortune to grow your kingdom. Help us find joy 
in knowing that we are ultimately chosen with a divine purpose. Be with us today and throughout the rest of our week. We pray this all in your precious son's name. Amen.